Hi there, and welcome to We Think We Know, a podcast by Pentasools.com. As a team of security specialists, we wanted to create a space where we could challenge offensive security norms, extract lessons from top ethical hackers, and fuel your hacking ambitions. We believe growth is not about having all the answers. What matters more is to keep questioning your attitude, tactics, and tools. So get ready to push boundaries, celebrate wins, and embrace the unexpected. Ready to dive in? Let's do it. Welcome to the kickoff episode of the We Think We Know podcast. Whether you're looking for a fresh perspective, to learn about or from our guests, or just to see if this podcast is worth your time, thanks for choosing to spend a few minutes with us. We don't take it for granted. Today, we've got the fantastic Elise Dennis with us, wearer of many hats and generous contributor to the cybersecurity community, Elite's work covers a broad range of offensive security activities, from pen testing to social engineering to red teaming, including tabletop exercises. In 2019, Elite took home the top prize at the prestigious DEF CON Social Engineering CDF. She later snagged a DEF CON black badge, becoming a go-to social engineering expert and cybersecurity ally for companies around the world. Sharing examples from her real-world experience, Elite helps us break down a stubborn misconception. The penetration testing is merely a commodity, another box to tick off for compliance. By all means, this is not a new issue in offensive security, but it is a particularly persistent one. When pen testing is seen as a commodity, it undervalues expertise, it lowers pay, it leads to superficial testing scopes, and generally reduces work satisfaction. That's why we're talking about it. Elite offers very practical tips and language you can use to highlight the value of your work and the nuances it involves. You're in for a treat. Elise, such a pleasure to welcome you to the We Think We Know podcast. Um, being one of the first guests here, um, it's really just an occasion to, to celebrate the fact that so many people, such as yourself, are investing their time and energy into sharing your experience and your knowledge and just your energy and time with all of us. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. You have such a rich background, such incredible stories uh, that you've told on a bunch of other podcasts that I've uh, like avidly listened to and very much enjoyed. But today I'm hoping to start off on a different track and one of the first things that I wanted to ask you is why do some people think penetration testing is a commodity? I think that currently most testing is driven by a compliance framework of some type. So most people that are purchasing pen testing are driven more by the compliance framework that requires it and they genuinely want to purchase the testing for the purposes of revealing any gaps or vulnerabilities within their systems, people, and processes. So it becomes a commodity because it satisfies a requirement and the hope 
from those types of buyers is that it will check a box on a compliance check sheet and that they'll be able to move on with their lives. Unfortunately, pen testing really doesn't fall into that type of bucket, in my opinion. I think it's less of a commodity and more of a service and that that service should be customized to the target client environment and that that should be a collaborative experience for both the testing firm, which is typically external to the company being tested, uh, to give that unbiased approach and the external no-knowledge benefits of uh, having a pen test conducted by an outside resource. I find that if you're doing internal testing, there is some... um, there is some, um, there are some things that you know as an internal employee that you can't unknow when you're doing testing. So if you hire an external vendor to perform that testing, which is most often the requirement, even from a compliance perspective, you get that unbiased opinion, but you also have an opportunity to learn and grow as a security team mm-hmm. and collaborating with your pen testers and the firm that's providing those services um, to be more cooperative in the scope of the engagement will allow you to reveal vulnerabilities and uh, gaps in security at many levels in the organization rather than just being fixated on the no knowledge external pen test view. So it, it can't really be a commodity if you're not purchasing something that is a, a standardized product. And for pen testing, it is unique every time. Every client organization is different. They have a different combination of vendors, services, applications that they use, people, processes, policies. Um, All of those things come together to create something unique. So every client has to be approached from that perspective. And so if you've hired a firm that is worth their salt, so to speak, they're going to look at that organization, identify what services are being used and adapt their strategies uh, based on how they progress through the, you know, primary layers of pen testing. However, I don't think that there is any one set process or like a process document that you could follow to create an effective pen test. Mm. And there's, there's a lot to unpack that in, in, in your answer and thank you for giving us this overview and for highlighting the uniqueness of every engagement. Because uh, I feel like there's such, uh, uh, it holds up such an important mirror to all of the systems that we've created, but especially to the humans who have created them, simply because a company is as unique as the people who build it, uh, as the people who choose its technology and that's a layer that I feel a part of the industry is trying to codify into repeatable processes, uh-huh. just like you mentioned, like a spec sheet. But you can't really do that. There are limits to that. So I, I first wanted to unpack from your answer the baggage that the term penetration testing carries. Uh-huh. How do you think kind of that baggage form? Do you remember? Um, an inflection point that led to kind of the fall from grace of this term um, at times? I Well, I, I went into this in quite a bit of detail during the presentation that I gave for the keynote at Security Fest. 
um, earlier this year. So I won't go into immense detail, but essentially I think that there is a misconception from buyers, from our clients as to what a pen test is. Um, and I feel that pen tests sit in the middle between vulnerability scanning and a comprehensive red team assessment. And so a pen test is typically something that is going to hit every door and test and see if they're all locked. And it's going to be very noisy and deploy every tool available to the tester to try to break through that series of doors. However, with vulnerability scanning, there's no uh, requirement to actually walk through the door. That's something that can be automated. <laughs> it's more process driven. And essentially, they're just looking from an external perspective as to what could be exploited, what could be vulnerable based on a series of questions that essentially that tool goes out and asks um, from the environment that they're testing. And then you have red team assessments, which are trophy and goal driven. So the team that's performing a red team assessment can use any avenue to reach one final goal destination. There's one door that needs to be opened and one item behind that door that needs to be retrieved. And the team can take whatever is the shortest, most efficient route to that goal, but they will not go in and test all of the available options. Mm -hmm. Their job is just to achieve the goal and then report back to the client. So we have a lot of um, marketing terms and things that have started uh, to be used more readily in general marketing of pen tests that confuse a lot of buyers, especially those who are non-technical, because they think all three of these things are the same thing. Or they confuse a pen test with a red team. And that's where I see a lot of disconnect with the expectations of the client versus the products and services that they purchased from the offensive testing company. Um, so to that end, <clears throat> I think pen testing has kind of uh, received a bad rap because people don't fully understand what's involved. And so we're not setting the right expectations in our marketing sales and then pre-qualification of the client environment for that service. It's wonderful that clients want to spend money on a red team, for example, but if they're in a client organization that has a very low maturity level in their security program and they're not ready for that red team, then typically they come in expecting a pen test. And then we have that misalignment of expectations and then there's a sour taste in everyone's mouths. And I think the same could go for the selling of vulnerability scanning and the expectation of a pen test um, because we're not setting the right expectations there with what the service actually provides, what the output is, what does the report look like, what am I going to gain from this experience, and what are the available options to me from the standpoint of adapting to, um, you know, a roadblock and moving past it. Like, um, we don't typically want to put our consultants in a position where the client doesn't understand the service that they've purchased. And there's a lot of room for that to happen, especially at all the different layers of the sales process. Um, and I think that that's where 
this requirement through compliance coupled with the lack of full understanding of what the service does, what the consultants are actually doing and what the output from this experience is. Because I bought a pen test, we got a pen test, we did our annual thing, like check the box, move on. And then you don't have any uh, remediation efforts or the talents available in the client organization to go and remediate all the things that are found. And it just kind of gets shoved under the mat until next year. So there's several different ways that the the uh, the idea of pen testing has gained this sour, bitter kind of perception, especially from those who are essentially strong-armed into being tested every year. They're already sour about it. <laughs> It's not something that they want to do. And then you have this sour kind of perspective because uh, we well, we have to go by our annual testing. And then you have the misalignment of what the client thinks they bought versus what they're actually getting. And I've seen that repeated throughout several different organizations that I've worked with or at over the years. And I think that we need to get better about communicating expectations to clients. What does this service actually include? What is the output? What are the expectations remediation-wise from the consulting firm? Um, <clears throat> and how do we effectively improve client security programs through this testing rather than just saying, here's your report, check your box, see you again next year. <laughs> and then we come back and everything is just as broken the following year. Those nuances... I feel is something that industry, let's say insiders, or even in this niche, honestly, uh -huh. um, that's uh, penetration testing. Um, th there's there's a certain amount of knowledge, but it, the bias of knowledge is that you form, let's say, distorted expectation as to what uh -huh. the client should know. Uh, and honestly speaking, we maybe sometimes tend to forget as an industry that information security is still a new thing. It's uh -huh. not only new as a discipline, but it's also extremely complex, extremely intricate, very technically dense. So it's unfair sometimes to get frustrated with clients, even technical people, who don't uh -huh. really understand all of these nuances and these differences. So while I know that many technical specialists, many ethical hackers love the tinkering aspect of it, the, the challenge, the curiosity, all of the good stuff that they enjoy, perhaps they enjoy the communication part less, the expectation part <laughs> less, but to be able to do that work that you enjoy, that they enjoy, that aspect is essential because otherwise this disconnect will continue to of breed frustration for absolutely both all, all of the people involved um honestly so this is this is one of the reasons why we actually wanted to talk about the craft aspect of penetration testing because it brings out all of these nuances and all of these unresolved problems that keep popping up again and again and making just life harder for everyone involved um so when we talk about a I feel there, there's there's a tendency to leap over these problems and go straight into let's automate everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> which, 
which you know and all of the people who who have done the work know that is an absurd claim to be able mm-hmm. to let's just automate the whole thing and I, I i wanted to ask you know from your perspective of the person who has done it who has worked <laughs> with this incredible teams who have brought those skills together how does it feel when you see these claims perhaps you know in the industry or just in articles in in you know trendy thoughts uh leadership pieces and so on what what's that like it's tough for me to say that any one pen test has gone exactly the same way ever so how do you automate something that is completely unique each time you have unique challenges, obstacles, uh, communication milestones, and uh, I think the closest thing that we'll ever be able to automate fully is, of course, vulnerability scanning. But still, it takes a human to read that vulnerability report and then translate that for a client organization and give them ideas as far as how they could potentially remediate these things is there you know one or two low lift items that we know wouldn't impact budget you know significantly that they could do to mitigate the majority of these uh, types of vulnerabilities i don't think we're ever going to get to that level where we don't need a consultant in the middle of that process so i think there are a lot of opportunities for us to automate the more repetitive tasks, um, things like um, doing reconnaissance, a lot of those things have been somewhat automated using tools. But at the end of the day, you can't really task a tool to go out and do a full analysis of a, a target company and give you the intelligence that a, a real attacker would have looking at, you know, social media and examining pictures and um, just knowing how business works and the processes and practices that could result in compromise uh, through the human experience. You can't expect a computer to have that perspective. And it's something that even emerging talent won't have it's something that develops over time as you gain experience as a consultant you start to see those patterns develop um so no i don't think that we could ever fully automate any of these processes and deliver quality testing that's the caveat i mean you could but it'll not be a great high quality report um and you're also going to have that gap between you know, here's your report. Well, well, now what? What do I do with it? Um, and so having that <clears throat> ability to lean on folks who have the experience, who've done years of testing, who recognize the patterns and can identify ways that companies can start to close those gaps, starting with, you know, most cost efficient, uh, lightest lift. Some organizations are still using very um, basic passwords for things like corporate wireless networks like those are things that it takes time and it is a burden on the IT and security teams to make those changes because it affects so much Um, but those are recommendations that 
ultimately are achievable. Whereas <clears throat> taking all the computers off the internet is <laughs> not. And I could see a, an automated tool recommending something like that. Like, you know, AI, automated tool, machine learning, whatever you want to call it would just go easy fix. These are all vulnerable to the internet, remove the internet. <laughs> so, um, you know, there are subtle nuances that um, I don't feel that we'll be able to educate any system on, but there are also those unique experiences that we have as consultants performing tests that allow us to make recommendations that are meaningful to our clients and allow them to make changes within their organizations that reduce their attack service pretty quickly, but also take into consideration the fact that they may only have one or two resources on their security and IT team combined um, or lack of budget and funding. When I was working with critical infrastructure, um, the fact that they would be required to have pen tests on an annual basis was something that scared the heck out of them because they knew they didn't have the budget for it because they're dependent on uh, city, county, and state funding for those items. Um, so it's something that I feel more automated vulnerability scanning could help to hit the baseline for those organizations. It's not ideal, but at least it's something. Whereas more comprehensive pen testing and then ultimately red teaming for the most mature um, organizations, those will never be fully automated and result in any quality outcome. Absolutely true across the line. And also, I wanted to unpack just a little bit. One of the things that you said is this deep understanding of context and honestly, just a human connection, that human trust that you need to get people to, <clears throat> to get people to go beyond their resources and, and do something because they understand how important it is or what a big difference it can make. What has changed around, you know, how you incentivize people to do these things, to carry out the remediation steps, to make some progress? How has uh -huh. it changed for you, um, you know, now compared to when you first started uh, working in this space and, and working on engagement? When I first started working in the space, I was performing um, security assessments, which were very passive. Um, they were all um, based on self-attestation by the client as to the processes, procedures, and things that they were doing or understood that their teams were doing. But there was no real testing in those types of assessments. They were purely... Um, discussion-based and then the output would be a report with some recommendations you know things like you should explore uh, MFA providers and then evaluate which option would be best for the organization and we'd issue this report and then come back a year later and do the same assessment and learn that maybe they had figured out that they have MFA available but they hadn't made a requirement and it just seemed like things were moving very slowly and due to lack of budget, resourcing, and several other factors, the majority of these organizations were in the same state as they had been the last time we talked to them. 
And so that was quite deeply frustrating. I also found that I didn't feel like I was being effective in this industry, delivering those types of assessments. It felt very much like security theater in that they had an assessment done, they got their rubber stamp, and then everybody moved on with their lives. And so um, joining Bishop Fox, I was very excited to have the ability to test organizations with more mature security programs and also with the budget and resources to take action as a result. Um, it was quite humbling because I got brought to my knees a few times where the client organization was just so strong that it was very difficult for me to overcome the security controls and measures that they'd taken to protect themselves. And I wasn't used to that coming out of, you know, critical infrastructure and public entities that just have much less mature um, security postures. So um, the thing that I find I use social engineering on the most is that communication with the client, regardless of what the actual services that we're providing. And probably most often with the incident response red team tabletop exercises, because I can come in there and I can be a big jerk and I can make a really tough scenario with a bunch of injects that bring them to their knees and just thoroughly embarrass the entire team. Or I can take their incident response plan. I can make a scenario that allows them to validate that plan at every level against the injects that I provide them. And then I can coach them through that plan if they fail to, you know, make it to the next step on their own um, <clears throat> while maintaining this relationship and this sentiment overall of collaboration with them to improve the plan and to train the people. Because let's be honest, a lot of the times, most of the people who are participating in the tabletop, they've never seen the plan before. <laughs> and so this is a training opportunity just as much as it is an opportunity to test whether or not that plan is um, efficient and effective against a cybersecurity style incident. Um, so during that, I'm, I'm balancing, um, testing this plan and delivering these injects against turning my client into my enemy, because I want them to see the value in the exercise and to collaborate with their team and add their feedback and their insight and be vulnerable and tell me how they think they messed up when they created this plan so that we can identify those things and put them into the recommendations for improvement and help them close some of these gaps. Um, but it is all very human, the delivery side of pen testing. And if you take the approach that's, you know, I just want to pwn stuff and like go home and, you know, celebrate, then I don't feel that you give yourself the ability to deliver something that is meaningful to your client. And also after, you know, receiving this report, you don't give the client the ability to then resolve these issues without really giving them um, the tools and the trust in you to, to take your advice and your feedback. 
Definitely. And not just the, the fact that you're talking about all of these levels involved in the entire process of getting a client from the first step, from the first contact to meaningful change in their organization, that takes a lot. It takes a lot of skill. It takes a lot of tactical skill. It takes a lot of knowledge of psychology and uh -huh. behavior, which is something you excel at. And this is where um, I think that um, social engineering skills and experience are so valuable. Just like you mentioned, you you probably use them more with your clients <laughs> uh, than against your clients. Um, right. And, and this is one of those patterns that I, I assume you've seen over and over again. And I was wondering if you have like, if you have memories of specific moments where your, you know, customers realize their blind spots and realize that, you know, they thought they knew their infrastructure, they thought they knew everything that's going on in their companies and then suddenly realize there's this, you know, big, <laughs> big door that no one had opened to to look behind, and it was just sitting there. Um, what are some some reactions that they had, and what are some, you know, practical tactics that uh -huh. perhaps younger, um, you know, ethical hackers could learn from and could, you know, learn to just look into them? Sure, I think the most notable client reactions, the first few that come to mind. Um, the first one was a medical organization that on an assessment call, they realized that a practice that they had felt was being followed by the team, which was do not send patient information outside of these applications, was absolutely not being followed. And so they had people who were making home care visits who were being text messaged pictures and medical information about patients. And it was completely outside of any HIPAA regulation, uh, let alone just good security practice for them to be doing those things because they were using, you know, purple, uh, personal mobile phone devices uh, to do that. And when the executive and management team learned this based on testimony of someone who was in that line of work within the organization in that job function, their eyeballs almost jumped out of their heads. And so I think that it's vital that management and executives are paying attention to the day-to-day -day processes and that they are knowledgeable of how data is moving through their organization and that they don't rely on the policy that dictates how it should be handled to understand how it actually is being handled. And that team members are aware of what the policy is and that they are empowered to bring challenges to their managers and say, hey, I know the policy is go. this. I'm not supposed to send this this way. You've got no choice but to send it this way. Is there something else we can do here to follow the right procedure? Um, and trying to have those conversations rather than just figuring out a workaround and then that becomes the process. Um, another example that was kind of like a... <clears throat> this one was kind of interesting because it was a 
uh, also a medical industry um, type of organization. They had a phishing and security awareness training platform that they were using. It's not the one you're thinking of, uh, but they were using this to do training and testing. And they were absolutely certain that all of their employees, their entire employee population would just be stellar against any phone phishing activities based on the fact that their click rates for email phishing were extremely low. Oh. And so they'd done so many tests and they'd done so much training. Everybody was super competent when it came to identifying email fish. So the next logical step was for them to explore phone phishing. And they were certain that their team would just not be vulnerable to this style of attack at all. And so they wanted for us to test three different functions within the business, human resources, IT, and uh, executives and executive support team members, people like executive assistants and people that support the executive team. And we had uh, gained phone numbers for the IT help desk, like the internal help desk number. And we had gained the HR help desk number, which was an internal number, but it was available publicly on the internet. Uh, And we then sourced the direct phone numbers for a number of executives and they those numbers may be answered by their assistants but they were their you know direct dial desk phone numbers and so we tested first human resources and uh i had developed a pretext around employment verification i was going to try to elicit employee pii And this HR person just shut me down so hard. Like they followed the process perfectly. They were like, we don't do those over the phone. You need to send an email. Um, And email phishing was not in scope. So I couldn't do that. (laughs) So I was like, well, hmm, okay, what's the right email address? And I like took down all the notes of what is the proper procedure. And I was posing as a property management person from the local area. And then I called back four hours later and I said I sent the email did you not get it and I had her on the phone and she's like well send it send me the email now while we're on the phone and I was like oh man she's good wow (laughs) and then eventually I kind of sweet talked her into looking the employee up um and then for IT I developed a pretext where I was going to pose as an internal employee and have them go to a website that could potentially be malicious but I had no intention of delivering anything malicious or even trying to capture credentials. It was just a, would they go to this potentially malicious site? Um, and that I, every single person I talked to went to it. Um, and if they had been reporting internally effectively, they would have caught that over Ooh. all the repetitions of the same pretext. And then with the folks that were working on the executive team and to support them, I just wanted to find out about procedures to come on site, where the security is, how I check in, what the expectations are, is your IT team on site, if I need to, you know, help setting up my projector because I'm doing a presentation, that kind of stuff. And they just gave me everything, including COVID procedures and where the desks were for security so I could avoid them, names of buildings on the campus and like 
which I was posing as a cafeteria employee for the vendor that provided cafeteria mm. services. So they gave me the names of the cafes and what buildings they were in and like all these really great details. So I reached out to the client and I was like, I've done, you know, between five and 10 calls in each department. I know that we had scoped up to 30 per department, but I think I've got a great sampling of data enough for me to create the report you know can I stop now because and this is always the point where I reference it feels like I'm clubbing baby seals and I don't want to keep going because it's just it doesn't give any additional uh, benefit to the reporting and it just starts to feel bad <laughs> so they responded and they're like, well, is it safe to assume that no one fell for your ruse? And I was like, I think we need to schedule a call. <laughs> so there are very different types of factors in play when it comes to social engineering. When you have the time to process and contemplate your response before you have to make it, as with an email fish, it's much easier to avoid that emotional manipulation. However, when you're on the phone with someone, especially if they're calling a number that's supposed to be internal, there's that level of trust that can have employees negate process. For example, the IT help desk should have verified I was an employee, made me prove it, then opened a ticket, then we can talk kind of a thing. So that was an eye opener for them. Um, and then I think uh, the final final one and it just slipped away from me this moment of realization I can't recall oh yes now I remember so there was a client who we were performing an assessment for this is not a bishop box none of these instances were a bishop box actually but we were performing an assessment for a client they were on the phone with us and we were asking them like how would you uh, respond to someone gaining access to a Microsoft account. Um, like, what steps would you take if you feel one of your user accounts has been compromised? And one of the individuals on the IT team was like, well, you're just describing what exactly happened to us yesterday. And we were like, go oh. on. <laughs> and they said, well, we had a, an individual whose account was compromised. They, you know, accidentally put their credentials into a credential fish. And, uh, you know, within a few minutes, we had a report of the issue and we had uh, changed the employee's password. And my teammate said, is that it? That's all you did was just change the password? And they're like, yep, totally good. All all fine. And he goes, well, did you cancel any open sessions after you reset the password? And they were like, mm, no, I don't think so. And he's like, I think you should probably do that. And then change the password again. <laughs> because you may have somebody like persisting in your environment as we speak. And so this really shook them. But the most interesting part about this response is that they were more embarrassed than they were concerned about the threat. So their response was that they all started, we could tell they started chatting in a different channel about what to do. But my teammate was like, if you'd like some guidance, like his specialty is incident response. If you'd like some guidance on how to work through this, if you want us to take a look at it, if you want us to double check that they're in fact out, like, can we help you further? 
uh, like we've, you know, we're working off of hours. If you want to use them for this really quick, we're happy to help. And they were just like, no, I think we're good. Let's just move on. And I think that that was the most shocking response. And that's why I stress that when, when you're performing an assessment like that, you really have to build that trust between your team and the other team so that they don't feel like it's an audit type of a scenario mm-hmm. and it's more of a collaborative service where we're working together for a positive outcome. And one of the key things that's um, like a, a red line through all of your stories is that these are all opportunities to kind of lend elements from your culture and your way of talking people through these issues of coaching them to someone else who may not have them because culture dictates these types of reactions, the types uh-huh. of patients that customers have in their environment. And maybe they haven't had a chance to feel vulnerable in a workplace setting uh, to someone. Maybe they just don't know how to do it. They don't have the words. They don't have the approach. And seeing you do it, seeing someone else that you work with do do these things, talk to them uh-huh. like this. I think that's, that's such a great way to learn how to model your own communication towards teams and employees and team leaders and everyone that's um, truly involved in you know making all of these millions of tiny pieces work together uh, in a way that's truly beneficial for everyone. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's all in the delivery. I actually started my consulting journey um, in the staffing industry. So I worked for a multi-billion dollar global staffing company on their global market intelligence team as a consultant. And uh, some of the types of projects that they'd come to us for were, you know, why are we retaining full-time employees, but we can't keep contractors? Or why are we able to retain uh, talent at this location, but not this location? And so some of the things I would do are just go on job review and company review websites and then like give them the feedback that's there that they could see on the internet but it's all in the delivery and uh, being able to go to clients and say not only here's your problem but here's a solution that you can try I think is critical and so I try to do the same thing in my communication to my management even internally I try never to go to them with just like a gripe I'm like okay so this is what I'm seeing this is what I think is, you know, creating difficulty here. This is a problem with how this cycle happens. And like, this is how I think we can fix it. Um, or this is my idea and offering to help with that. It makes a huge difference. And so if we can approach our clients in the same way with pen yep. tests, you know, you're saying these are the things that I've identified, like gaps in your processes or just technical vulnerabilities in your systems And like, here's how you can overcome it and coupling those things together rather than just delivering a finding and being like, you're on your own. (laughs) Like That's much more beneficial in my opinion. Um, And it, it helps to create that trust and build that relationship. And that's how you get repeat business. A lot of our current clients are repeat customers because they appreciate not only the level of expertise, but the professionalism um, related to how we construct and deliver reports 
and then the comprehensive report readouts and uh, remediation that we offer um, with certain projects. Do you find that people coming into penetration testing nowadays, um, especially, you know, younger people or people who are just choosing to refocus their professional paths towards this, do you find that they're coming into this with wrong expectations, with expectations of a very, let's say, thrilling adventure that <laughs> nonstop dopamine hits one after the yeah. other as you find things and then you get to give talks at conferences and people cheer for you on Twitter. Well, <laughs> X or whatever uh, we're calling it now. <laughs> and everything else. Um, is there kind of this, let's say, pop culture um, phenomenon that's altering perceptions as to what this work really entails and where the value truly lies? Absolutely. I would say I get paid to write reports and I do all the hacking for free. <laughs> <laughs> and the, I mean, hours wise, the actual hacking part is probably like 25% of the time that I spend working. If we're being honest, it's probably less, but the report writing and the communication and the administrative stuff and like, you know, the real adulting, that's and the it. bulk of being an excellent consultant and the ability to communicate findings and um, do so in a way that doesn't create an adversarial relationship with the client while still acting like an adversary is something that's kind of tricky for some folks. I would say... Those who are transitioning into information security, cybersecurity from another industry, even if it's just, you know, information technology somewhere else mm. in the space, um, but totally if it's from somewhere like marketing or um, other types of consulting, like consulting is consulting, it's just a different item that you're selling but like overall consulting is pretty much the same across all industries. Those people have a better opportunity to transition smoothly into the space because they have that, um, those soft skills and the transferable skills like writing and communicating in PowerPoint slides. And I mean, let's be honest, most of this is PowerPoint and Excel <laughs> and a lot of different organizations that do um, consulting in the pen testing space. Um, but yes, there's two different like extremes that I see with the people who approach me who are trying to get in to this space. One is the people who are genuinely driven by the desire to learn and break things and get paid for it. And then there are the people who just really want to pwn people and do a touchdown dance and go home. And those folks are the ones that I feel are slightly misguided and they're going to have a lot tougher of a time remaining an employee of any organization for a long period of time. Because ultimately those individuals who don't have the client's best interest at heart and aren't good team players because they just want to do the poning and have somebody else deal with the adulting, those are the people that are going to struggle to become part of a team and they're more likely to become dissatisfied and move on on their own 
or be the result of an involuntary termination when either there's a reorg or, you know, business uh, priorities change, et cetera. Um, so I would say if you're wanting to get into pen testing, the most important thing is that you are an excellent communicator, that you are very well written because the bulk of your job is going to be writing, whether it's an email, status update, report, whatever. Um, and the technology piece, even if you aren't the most exceptional pen tester, demonstrating that you're learning and that you're growing and that you're taking the initiative to be proactive in that learning, uh, whether that is through certifications or participating in CTFs on like the hobby side of security, mm -hmm. um, you know, all of those things uh, give a good picture of you as a person and your commitment to the industry and and um, your desire to work in this space will probably be realized a lot more quickly if you can demonstrate those things rather than just write them down. Um, so looking to highlight those outside of work experiences as well as your transferable skills or um, you know degrees and certifications help to bypass HR um, but learning outside of those and just keeping track of like I took this course I attended this talk I went to this conference I um, participated in a CTF I know those types of things all add up and they give a good picture of your level of commitment What's something you you're learning right now? <laughs> right now, um, let's see. I've actually gone back kind of to the drawing board to start over and then uh, grow beyond my current level with uh, wireless and um, learning how to uh, create malicious implants <laughs> that leverage wireless. So I just recently had uh, the opportunity to do a physical pen test that focused very much on social engineering. So there's the human aspect of bypassing the people and there's the physical aspect of bypassing all of the locks and doors and cameras and right. all the things, badge readers. Um, but there's also that technical aspect of configuring the devices that you're going to implant hopefully on the network um and making sure that those things can communicate with uh wireless networks and things like that so that's where i'm focused right now is um getting very um adept at setting those up and then more confident in my uh, payload development and execution to make sure that we're bypassing things like uh edr <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thanks so much for, for sharing all of this and for going into so much detail, especially on the example side, uh, especially in all of these nuances that all kind of center around, just like you said, adulting, just growing <laughs> up with your profession and sometimes even letting your profession um, develop you. Well, not just sometimes, but most times. Uh, spending so much on work, it's, it's such a huge part of our makeup as humans uh, and again highlighting just the unique human abilities that are involved in this space I feel this is still one of the key things that we need to keep talking about because technology can be fascinating 
it can be trendy it can be inviting but at the end of the day it's still just a component in a much bigger system that's a human system at the end of the day <laughs> absolutely so, i really appreciate you coming on and sharing all of these stories with us i've really enjoyed your talks and everything that you shared in podcast and how candid you've been about your development and i just wanted to kind of give my public appreciation for how you're inspiring and guiding others through your examples through your vulnerability and openness uh, and by just investing so much time and energy into you know giving talks and, and being there for people who for the people who truly want to learn just like you mentioned so thanks so much Elif. uh this has been just a really great um conversation full of teachable examples uh, that we can't wait to share Thank you. No, I appreciate that so much because I'm sure that you could listen to some of my older uh, podcast recordings and talks and go, wait a second, that is not exactly what she said the last time she spoke. And it's true because I reserve this right to change my mind as I learn more. And so even my perspective on things like social engineering has changed dramatically even in the last one to two years. So just having that openness to allow yourself to be vulnerable and admit that you probably had a wrong opinion and uh, adapting and overcoming that and continuing to grow, I think is the the one message that I would want to share with everyone. So thank you again for allowing me to come on today and sharing all of this with you. My pleasure. Ever wondered how deep the rabbit hole goes in the world of ethical hacking? Well, we're still falling and we're dragging you along with us one question at a time. Thanks for wandering through this maze with us as we tackle the nitty-gritty, flip misconceptions on their heads and maybe, just maybe, made you rethink some of the things that are important to you. This has been the We Think We Know podcast by Pentestools.com. And before I sign off, keep this in mind. There's always a back door or at the very least, a sneaky side entrance. See you next time.